Our first scripture tonight is in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. I know that is on the slide that is on the screen, but I would encourage you to turn to Judges chapter 2, verse 10, and to read that verse in your Bible. We've been thinking this week about turning away from evil, and we've been encouraging one another to consider that we live our lives in Christ, we're going to have a lot of opportunity to turn away from evil and to turn to the good of the true and living God. And so tonight, we're going to consider Judges chapter 2, verse 10, and the first thing that we're going to do as we look at this verse is ask the question, what happened? After all that generation were gathered to their fathers... Another generation arose after them who didn't know Yahweh, who didn't know Jehovah, who didn't know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So when we ask the question, what happened? The answer is, another generation arose who did not know two things. Number one, they did not know Yahweh, they did not know the, the, the true and living God. And they did not know the work that he had done for Israel. So as we think about the context of, of Judges chapter 2, verse 10, the, the Bible begins with the book of Genesis, and Genesis is the book of beginnings. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created male and, uh, male and female in his image, and as we come to the book of Genesis chapter 12, we see that God selected this man named Abram, and he made him these, these three great and precious promises. And he, and he promised Abram that he was going to make of him and his family a great nation. And that's what the book of Exodus is about. The rest of Genesis is about Abram, about Abraham's family. And God takes Abraham's family in the book of Exodus and he makes a great nation out of them. He, he makes the, the nation of Israel out of them. And so Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy are, are the story of the beginnings of this great nation. The second great promise that he makes to Abram in Genesis the 12th chapter is that he's going to bless him and his family, his, his, his nation, with, with a place to live, with, with a land to live in after they become a great nation. And so the book of Deuteronomy ends with the transition in leadership from Moses to Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, what we see is that Joshua leads the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel, into the land that God promised to give them so that they could live in that land and be God's nation. And in, Genesis, uh, and in Joshua chapter 21, in verses 43 through 45, we read that God fulfilled the, the land promise, that they took possession of all the land that God promised to give Abram in Genesis 12, that he specified the boundaries concerning in Genesis the 15th chapter. And so by the time we get to, to Judges chapter 2, verse 10, two of the three promises that God made to Abram, that God made to Abraham, have been fulfilled. They have become a great nation, and they have inherited the promised land. And after all of that was said and done, what happened? Well, after Joshua, and after all that generation, after Joshua were gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them 
who didn't know the God of Genesis 1 verse 1, who didn't know the Lord God of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, who didn't know the Lord God who had made those promises to their, to their father Abraham and, and, and Isaac and, and Jacob and Judah. They didn't know the God of, of Moses and they didn't know the great work that he had done for his people, for them for their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers, another generation arose who did not know those two things that we read about in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. How did that happen? How did that happen? I suggest to you for your consideration this evening that there are three possibilities to the question of how did that happen. Maybe it was because of a failure to teach. As we turn our attention now to Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what life in, in Moses should have looked like. So we live our lives in Christ but these folks were living their lives, if you will, in Moses, according to the law of Moses. They were in covenant with God through Moses. We live our lives in Christ under the law of Christ, and we're in covenant with the true and living God through Jesus. And so this is what their life in Moses should have looked like. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And here's what, you're should, here's what you're to do with these words. You are to teach them diligently to your children, and you are to talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, the totality of your life is to be lived within the context of the word of this God. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What happened? Well, another generation arose who did not know two things. They didn't know the Lord, and they didn't know the work that He had done for Israel. And so how did this happen? Well, one possibility is that they had failed to teach their children. And that generation of children failed to teach their children, and so forth and so on. And so another generation arose that hadn't been taught. Maybe it wasn't a failure to teach. Maybe it was a, fail, a failure to model. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and in verses 24 and 25, after they've been given the charge to, to take the Word of God and to hide it in their heart and to teach it to their children, they were called in Deuteronomy 6 verse 24 to observe all those statutes, to fear the Lord our God, to understand that all of His statutes, His commandments, His precepts, that they are for our good always, and that there's a blessing in obedience that He might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then and only then, verse 25, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. And so when we think about what happened, when we think about this generation that, that arose that didn't know the Lord and the work that He had done, Maybe it wasn't a failure to teach. Maybe it was a failure to model. 
My best friend in high school came over to my house one day during the summer, and he was all broken up, and I'd never seen him in, a, in the state that he was in. And he came over to tell me that his parents had just told him that they were, they were going to get a divorce. And it broke his heart. And quite frankly, he never got over that. And when all that played out, and his mom went one way and his dad went the other, his dad's model of parenting him was, do as I say, not as I do. And I want to tell you tonight, as we think about these things, I am not an expert in this or in any other subject, but I do have some experience at this point in my life. And young people, that is one of the reasons why you should honor and respect older people, because they've had some experience in life under the sun that you haven't had yet. And I'll tell you what experience does. It teaches you and it humbles you. And I want to tell you that model of parenting, it doesn't work. It's one thing to know the Word of God. It's another thing to model the Word of God. So why did this generation arose that didn't know the Lord or the work that He had done? Well, maybe it was because of a failure to teach. Maybe it was a, a failure to, to model. But it just might be that the problem was, with, was within that generation itself. Maybe the generation before them taught, and maybe they did model. But maybe the generation that arose that didn't know the Lord or, or, or the work that He had done, maybe they had just failed to learn. In Exodus, the fifth chapter, and in verses 1 and 2, Moses and Aaron, they, they go and they tell Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says to them in verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And I want you to see what Pharaoh didn't say in verse 2. Pharaoh did not say, I don't know who the Lord is. Tell me about him. What's he like? What is his will? Tell me about his nature. Tell me about his attributes. Tell me about his characteristics. Tell me about, about your God. I, I, I want to, to know about him. I want to learn about him. I, I want to understand. All my life, I heard the expression that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink. And I want to tell you what my kids taught me. You can't teach anyone anything that they don't want to learn. I'm going to tell you something tonight that you may not know. Those of us who stand up here and teach and preach, when we start doing this, it, it, it's, it's nerve-wracking and and. and and when we start out, all that we really think about is what we're going to say next. And we're looking at our Bible and we're looking at our notes and there's all this anxiety about all that. And I still have that to get up every time I teach. And I'll tell you, one of my mentors told me, when you stop feeling like that, that's when it's time to, to stop getting up. Because what we're doing is we're taking God's word and we're talking about it. And we, and we have a great responsibility when it comes to what we, what, what we do. And so I, I still have all that, but over time that has lessened some. And so now, 
When I'm standing up here teaching, I'm standing up here preaching, Dave and Leland and your, and your shepherds, when we stand up here and we teach or we preach or whatever, we can see what you're doing. I can look out at the audience and uh, I can see who's listening. I can see who's waving at me over there. And, and I can see whether or not you are interested in what I'm saying, whether you're paying attention, whether or not you care about what I'm talking about. And I'll tell you, as, as, as we were raising our kids, there were just some lessons that we tried to teach them, and they did not want to learn those lessons when we wanted to teach them. And so how did this happen? Well, maybe it was a failure to teach. I, I want to tell you something about parenting that you're going to, uh, that you're going to learn. When you are raising your children, the days are long, but the years are short. There were some days that we didn't know if we would ever make it through the day. Brian walked in tonight carrying one of his children in the, in the car seat, and he said to me, he said, do you remember this? I sure do. Feels like yesterday, brother. I remember the moment in which we found out and Amberly said to me as she peeked through the door in the dock in the box, I'm pregnant. That feels like yesterday. It was sometime during the early spring or summer of 1998. And Sarah Elizabeth came into the world and I just couldn't wait to see her. And now she's 24 years old. I want to tell you about 24 years. It gets by like it's nothing. And so as you think about your life, you, your days are not infinite. They are finite. And if I was going to describe raising children in a word, the word that I would use is it's consuming. Raising your children will consume your time, it will consume your money, it will consume your energy. And if you are like me, and you are selfish, you're going to be faced with the temptation not to invest the time into them that they need for you to invest in them if you are going to teach them. Teaching your children takes time, it takes energy, it takes love, it takes patience. It is all consuming. I thought about becoming a teacher in the first education I, class I took, the teacher said, don't do it, don't go into this field. And this would have been in the fall of 97. And she said, I'll tell you why you shouldn't go into education, because most kids in our country today, they, they weren't raised. They just grew up. You can have some kids, and they can grow up, and 18 years can get by. But if you're going to raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, your days are going to be long. 
and you're going to experience a lot of heartbreak because they're not going to learn the, the lessons that you're trying to teach them in your time. They're going to learn those lessons in their time. And so how did this happen? Well, maybe it was a failure to teach or maybe it was a failure to model. Let me tell you something about your kids. Your kids growing up in your home, they are going to see you. They are going to see the real you. There is only one person who has ever lived in all of human history that lived a life without regret. And his name is Jesus. My son knows that I'm not in on, on any of this social media stuff. And from time to time, he'll send me something just to goad me with it. And he was sent me a little video the other day. And uh, so our daughter, Sarah, is 24. Our son, Nathan, is 22. And our, our, our baby is 19. So Nathan sends me this video. And sometimes I don't even click on him. I just, like, you know, send the thumbs down without even looking at him. But I, I clicked on this one. I clicked on this one. And it was a lot of famous men in our culture that are popular in our culture. If I called their names, you would recognize them. And they were talking about their dads, their, their, the, the lack of, of, of dad in their life. And they were talking about how their dads had abandoned them when they were little or their dads had mistreated them and that their dads were horrible. And that, and that one of the biggest disappointments in their life is that they didn't have a dad. So Nathan sent me this video and, and, and then he topped out under the, underneath the video in his words. He, he said, appreciate you. Shortened for appreciate you, right? And so I immediately shot back and I said, well, I will say that I'm not as bad as those other guys' dads. I did do a better job than those guys' dads. But I sure am sorry for those times I failed you. I want to tell you, you're going to fail. You're going to fail to model the perfection that is Jesus Christ. And when you do that, your kids are going to see that. They're going to see that you don't look like Jesus, that you don't sound like Jesus. And because you don't look like him or sound like him, it's obvious to them that you're not thinking like him. And I want to tell you, if you're going to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and you're going to have a relationship with them that glorifies God, if you're going to have a relationship with them that when it's all said and done, they still talk to you, <laughs> you're going to have to learn to say, I'm sorry. My sister's here tonight, and my dad had a lot of opportunity raising the two of us to say, I'm sorry. But that was his redeeming quality. he fell short of God's glory it grieved him and so I look back on my life and I think about all the lessons I failed to teach I, I, I look back and I think about all the times that I failed to model and I rest in Jesus 
And His grace is sufficient to forgive my sins. And that He will remember them against me no more. And that's all any of us can do, beloved. At the end of the day, the only thing that will matter when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ is whether or not we have been forgiven. But until he comes, the question that we all must face is how we're going to respond to life. How we are going to live our lives in the context of what the devil and his angels throw at us. And so as we think about the context of of Judges chapter 2 verse 10, I always go back to Numbers chapter 13. And in Numbers chapter 13, what we have, as Moses will tell us in Deuteronomy, is an event in which the people of God asked for it. They said, we, we think it'd be a good idea to send some folks ahead of us into the land to sort of see what we're getting into. And God basically said, be careful what you ask for there because that didn't work out so well. And so what you got are, you know, members of each tribe and, and they go into the land and we begin reading in, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. And when they get back and they give the report to Moses and Aaron as they have spied out this land that God has told them over and over again, I'm giving this to you, it's a gift. I am giving it to you. I am giving it to you. They come back with this report and they say, we went to the land where you sent us and it truly flows with milk and honey and, and this is his fruit. I mean, everything you said about that was true. Uh, nevertheless, Moses... The people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. How do you respond to life? Do you respond to life in fear or in faith? And I want to tell you, besides Joshua and Caleb, these spies who came back, I, I don't believe that they had any other look on their face when they, was get, when they were giving this report than that of fear. They were afraid of all of those people that were in the land. They were afraid of how many of them there were. They were afraid of the size of them. And so in response to what they saw, they said, we can't do it. By contrast, can you, can you imagine... Can you imagine the disciples ever looking at the face of Jesus and seeing fear in his face? I mean, you just think about all the, all the times that the apostles were with Jesus and they were in all of these dangerous situations. Do you think that they ever looked at the face of Jesus and thought, uh-oh, the context of turn away from evil is fear the Lord. 
And Jesus would say this to us a couple of times in the Gospels. I like Luke's account of it. So in Luke chapter 12, Jesus would say, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more than they can do. Don't be afraid of all those inhabitants in the land that God said, I'm going to take those people out for, for you so that you can live there. I'm giving you this land. I'm going to drive all these people out. Don't be afraid of those people that you can see who, at the end of the day, the only thing that they can really do is separate your spirit from your body. That's all they can do. And the reason why people are so afraid of death is because they have been deceived by the devil into believing that this life is all there is and that there's nothing after this and there's no God and there's no judgment and there's no heaven and so let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so because we don't believe in, in life after death, we are accepting the lies of the devil and that bad theology is driving us to bad behavior and Jesus said, no. The solution to fearing those who can only kill the body is to... Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast in the hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So how did Jesus live his life? He, left it, he, he, left, he, he lived his life not only teaching the gospel of the kingdom, but modeling the behavior. And he had godly fear all right. And it was because of his godly fear, Hebrews 5 verse 7, that he was heard when he cried out. To the Lord our God, to our God and Father in heaven. How do you respond to life? Do you respond to life in, in fear or in faith? And so the, these folks, they were influenced by the ten who were not influenced by, by Joshua and Caleb. Here's what Judges tells us that they did. In Judges chapter 1, they failed to drive out the inhabitants. In Judges chapter 2 and in verse 12, they committed idolatry. In Judges chapter 3 and in verses 5 through 6, they intermarried with the people of the land that they failed to drive out. If they had obeyed and driven them out, then they wouldn't have been there for them to intermarry with so that they could lead them away from the true and living God to serve all of those false gods. Judges 2.17, they failed to listen. Yet they would not listen, Judges 2.17. And Judges 2.19 tells us that they were stubborn. It came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. By contrast, this is one of my favorite descriptions in all of Scripture. In contrast, as we go back to Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers chapter 14, we read in verse 24 when the Lord, when the Lord decides how He's going to respond to the ten versus the two and how we get 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of the unbelief of the ten and the unbelief that the ten created within the nation, the family of God. We have this contrast that begins with Caleb and Joshua joins the, the contrast party in verse 30. But in verse 24, listen to what it said about Caleb. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, 
I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Joshua is included in in verse 30. And as we turn our attention to Numbers chapter 32, Numbers chapter 32, verse 12, the tribes are settling east of the Jordan and we're we're making preparations for which tribe is going to inherit which part of the land. And we have this description of Caleb and Joshua in, in chapter 32, verse 12. Caleb, it was said of him in Numbers 24, verse 24, that he had a different spirit. And of Caleb and Joshua in verse 12 of Numbers 32, it says, For they, these two men, they have wholly followed the Lord. I love that so much. And I know I'm from the South. Every, everybody that, that we run into up in the, in the D.C. area, the first question that they ask us is, Where are you from? And I know that sometimes I say words and they sound like other words, but... There's a distinction, beloved, between holy, H-O-L-Y. God is holy, holy, holy. And this idea of being holy, as in all in, the totality, whatever you are, that's what God wants. He wants all of you. Joshua and Caleb, they were Holy, following the Lord. So we get into the book of Joshua and we're in the process of receiving the promise of the land. And in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb receives his inheritance. He receives Hebron. And in Joshua chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, Children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb was there. And Caleb said, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea? I love that so much. Hey, you remember? <laughs> you remember that time we were back there? And remember what the Lord said to you and me? You and me. What he said back there? I remember that too. Verse 8, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people met, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. I love that so much. I can't say that. Can you? Can you say that tonight? I can't say that. But he could, and I want you to notice he didn't get corrected for it. The Lord didn't say, well, now wait a minute. There was that part of you that you held back from me. Verse 9, Moses swore on that day saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. How do you respond to life? Do you respond in fear or in faith? Joshua and Caleb responded in faith, in full assurance of faith. If our children, our brethren, and our neighbors see us respond to life in fear, then why would they long to know about our God? If our children, our brethren, and our neighbors see us respond to life in fear, why would they long to know the message that we claim to believe? 
So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we modeling faith or are we modeling fear? How do you respond to life? Do you respond by conforming to the culture? And, I, you know, I respond to the formatting issue on that slide in a simple way. I'll just got to tell you. I'm going to repent of that right quick and get back on track. How do you respond to life or in the sun? By conforming to the culture or by conforming to the Christ? Do you, do you see what the rest of the people of God did when those ten spies said, we're scared and y'all ought to be scared too, and we ought to let our fear of the people that are in the land motivate us from going into the land. Their hearts melted because of the message of those two ten, because of the message of those two, because of the message of those ten men. Do you know, do you know the names of those ten men? Me neither. Isn't that something? You ever thought about that? Those ten men came back with fear in their with fear in their voice and fear in their face and the hearts of the rest of the people, they just, they just melted. And so what did they do? They, they conformed to the culture of those, of those ten men who brought back that bad report. And how'd that work out for them? And that's the thing, beloved. No, 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 no person that, that was striving to be a, a, a child of God whenever they live, patriarchs, Moses, Jesus, if you go about conforming to the culture, you're going to suffer in time. The culture doesn't love you. Because it lies under the sway of the wicked one. The world is deceived by him and the culture doesn't love you. The culture is seeking to destroy you because it is under the sway of the wicked one. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we conforming to, to, to Christ or are we conforming to the culture? And I'll tell you who will know that better than anybody else that you do life with. Your husband or your wife will know that. And your kids will know that. Another generation arose. What happened? Well, maybe they failed to teach. Maybe they failed to model. Maybe they failed to learn. How are we going to respond in our generation? Do you respond to life by seeking the wisdom of the world or by seeking the wisdom that is from above? We've been talking about things since the Lord's Day about how God has simplified everything for us. And that's one of the things that the devil tries to do. He just tries to complicate everything. And so from the beginning, God has just simply said to us, there are a lot of binary choices that you're going to have to make. And oh, by the way, creation from the beginning, there's, there's a binary aspect of that, male and female, right? And so here we go. Here, here's this pattern that we see developed from the beginning until now. There's just these two choices that God offers up. In almost every situation, there are two choices. And so when we come to, to wisdom, James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, I want you to see how everything that we have talked about thus far, if you've been here from Sunday morning Bible class until now, how all this ties together for such a time as this right here, right now. Watch this. James 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Because there are two types of wisdom and there are only two types of wisdom. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. It is not good. It is evil. It is of the devil. And this type of wisdom, verse 16, is where envy and self-seeking exist and confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above 
is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Who is this Jesus? In him dwells the fullness, present tense, of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. And what Jesus did as the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14, is all of the treasures that are hidden that pertain to wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. They were in him. The wisdom that is from above, beloved, it came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. When we are faced with a question, first and foremost, we ought to look upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 2, 1 and 2. Who is this Jesus? He himself is the truth. And what did he tell, tell us that he was going to do for us once he went back to heaven from where he came? He said, I'm going to send the spirit of truth and he is going to guide my hand-picked chosen apostles into all truth, and they're going to write that truth down after they have spent some time speaking it. And when you read what they wrote, you are reading the Word of God that is truth. When life hands you a question and you need some wisdom, your family is going to see where you go in search of it. You can give lip service all day long to, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and yeah, I believe the Bible's the Word of God. And then you can go about your life learning and knowing and caring more about statistics of a football player than you do concerning scriptures of the true and living God. And you can hide all those statistics in your heart, and you can rattle off how many yards a, a I don't know if y'all are Middle Tennessee football fans here or if y'all bleed orange. I don't know how that works here. But we all do it the same, don't we? We all care about things that just at the end of the day don't matter and we spend time thinking about it and talking about it and caring about it and our kids see all that. They know what matters to us and they know where we go when we're in search of something. You know, one of the things we've been thinking about is we as we draw this lesson to a close tonight, is the fact that we don't live our lives on a playground. We live our lives on a battlefield. And as we consider our enemy, and we consider the fact that he is not deity, right? He doesn't have the, the characteristics and the attributes of deity. So he's, he's not all-powerful, and he's not present everywhere at every time. He's not omniscient, Okay. He doesn't have the omni-qualities of God. He is, he, is, he is a being who is described as a, as a spirit being. He is below deity, but he's above humanity. He's not flesh and blood. And so the fact of the matter is, our enemy is bigger than us. He's stronger than us, and he's better equipped than us. And that is the point of Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, that if you do not strengthen yourselves in the present tense. If you do not strengthen yourselves in the Lord, if your strength is not in Him, if you do not allow Him to take His armor, the armor of God, if you do not allow Him to forge it and fit it so that it fits you perfectly, 
If you do not armor up and pray in the Spirit, you are going to fall. You are going to fall in time and you are going to fall forever. When the Lord says to you, depart from me, for I know you not. And so, what are we to do? You know, if you press me after, why do you think that generation arose that didn't know the Lord? I don't know. I really don't. Maybe it was a failure to teach. But it seems to me like, you know, it's, it's impossible to teach folks that, that don't want to learn. So I think there's something to that, the failure to learn. And as we look at how this all played out, I mean, it's just obvious there was a failure, failure to model. So what shall we do? I tell you what, I don't think that the solution to all of this is to play the blame game. There's just enough blame to go around in, in all of our lives. No one wins when we play the blame game. Sometimes Amberly will talk about something that she didn't like about one of our kids, and I'll say, you just did a terrible job raising them, right? You should have done better. Nobody wins when we play the blame game. So what shall we do? What shall we do is not read past Acts 1 verse 1. In Acts 1 verse 1, we think, okay, that's the introduction to the book of Acts. Yeah, it is. But look at that. Look at that little truth in there about Jesus that's special. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began first and foremost to do. Do you know why I'm this man's disciple? Because his, 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 his model of leadership is not do as I say, not as I do. Jesus hasn't called you to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do. He washed Judas's feet before Judas left the upper room to go betray him. He loved his enemies. He died for his enemies. Even while we were his enemies, he died for us. This will land here. It doesn't always land up in northern Virginia. But when Jesus taught, he wasn't just whistling Dixie. He really meant it. And that's how he lived. He modeled. And then he taught. And when we look at him, what we see is perfection. And that's what we've been called to. We've been called to conform to his image. And so when you think about your life, you know, what are you, what are you doing? I, I don't always know what you're doing. And, and your shepherds don't always know what you're doing. And your preachers don't always know what, what you're doing. But he knows what you're doing. And that's all that matters. He, he's the one that we're going to stand before. And so the Lord knows what, what you're doing. He knows what you're doing with your time. And he knows what you're thinking about. He knows what you're talking about. You know, what are you teaching? What are you teaching your family at home? What are they seeing in you? Not, not only through what you say, but through what you do. I, I think that passage in First Peter is so special because it talks about wives who are married to Christians who aren't Christians. And, and the point is made that, that without a word, you may win them to Jesus. Well, how do you win somebody to Jesus without a word? You model Jesus. They see Jesus in you. And when they see Jesus in you, they say, what, what, is, what is going on with you? And that's when you have the opportunity to share Jesus. What are you doing with your time? What are you teaching as you live your life day to day? And as we think about the generation that arose that knew not the Lord and the work that he had done within the context of, of our individual families that joined themselves together in these, in these collective local churches, 
What will become of us if we fail to teach and we fail to model and we fail to encourage our children when they don't want to learn? Listen to me very carefully. When your children don't want to learn the lesson that you are trying to teach them, you Keep loving them. Just because your child doesn't want to learn today's lesson today, it doesn't mean that they want, want to learn it tomorrow. So you keep loving them. And you keep being patient with them. And you keep communicating to them like our Father in Heaven does in the parable of the prodigal, that if somewhere down the road you want to come home and you want to learn, I will be here for you. To the glory of God, beloved, let us not repeat the mistakes of the past, but through the comfort and the admonition of the Scriptures, let us have hope that we can do better than this generation didn't know the Lord, and didn't know the work that He had done for His people. If you're not a child of God tonight and you want to obey the gospel and be born again and adopted into the family of God through the one who has been called the Beloved, that's the point of the invitation song and this part in our service to give you the opportunity to be born again of the water and the Spirit, to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. If you are a Christian and tonight you are convicted, that you haven't been teaching and you haven't been modeling and you yourself haven't been learning and you know you know that Jesus loves you and that he'll forgive you what we can do for you if you'll just share that with us is we can encourage you and we can pray for you and we can tell you that there's forgiveness in him and that like all of those people in the past, who fell short of the glory of God, that if you humble yourself in His sight, then He will lift you up, and you can learn better, and you can do better to the glory of God. If we can help you, won't you come while we stand and sing this song to encourage you.